Hey there, thanks for coming. Before we get started, just a few reminders. You can sign up for text alerts from me, Big Mama. You'll get insider text before anyone else with invitations to be a guest on the podcast. New episode releases, secret merch drops. Just text the word JOIN to 332-244-6262. Remember, you have to be at least 13 years old to join the text list. Have you already left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts? No? What are you waiting for? Five-star reviews, especially with a comment, help the podcast to be found by other people. So do it now. Like, right now. Okay? Now. Hey, we're on the search for podcast guests. If you're a student, seventh grade or higher, who has ever seen, I don't know, some sus, moist behavior on Roblox or Discord, because, hey, who hasn't? Let us know. If we use your story in an episode, you'll get some merch. And don't worry, we'll never, ever, ever, ever use your real name or any other detail which might reveal your identity, because we're not idiots. You can either leave a voicemail at 332-244-6262 or email a voice memo to guests at bigmamashousepodcast.com. Thanks. This episode of Big Mama's House Podcast has been brought to you ad-free by our fans. If you would like to learn more about supporting this podcast and this topic, visit www.patreon.com forward slash Big Mama's House. Well, here we are, back together again. Thanks for coming back to Big Mama's House. This is Season 1, Episode 3. Young kids are sexting and watching porn, also known as don't dress up like a seal if you're going surfing. I'm glad to have you back for this super important episode, a sort of a safari expedition of the underworld of online sexting and sexual predation. Don't bring a camera. Since sexting now begins in the fourth grade, if you're listening and your children are in elementary school, this episode is especially for you. If I've just made you sick to your stomach, this episode is definitely for you because you don't know what's going on. Having said that, please be aware that you might not want your children listening to this episode, partially because I'm not trying to give them any ideas, but you might decide to listen to it with your child when you're done a second, third, or fourth time. You decide. This particular sexting episode was meant to be released next week, but then I saw something online that broke my brain and I had to push it forward to bring it to you sooner. We'll talk more about that later. We know children misbehave on their devices all the time, and why wouldn't they? That's normal. They're kids. It may begin when they're really young, when your three-year-old doesn't want to let go of your phone after watching six straight episodes of Peppa Pig. Never mind the fact that you're ready to stab yourself in the face because she's singing that song again about Peppa not being able to find her daddy's finger, and how is no one else disturbed by that? Kid misbehavior, device-related or not, starts out simple and small. My mother always says, little children, little problems, big children, big problems. The parenting challenges get bigger as your child gets older, and that makes sense. Most parents don't even consider the talk, you know, the talk, until the child is at least prepubescent. And that, I mean, that makes sense. You're not going to ask your toddler to pick up a tiny plastic chair to sit next to you so you can chat about herpes. I mean, at least I hope not. 
However, typical parenting logic is worthless when devices become a part of your home. That's when it gets more complicated. Here's where I see the biggest and most common digital parenting mistake. There's a digital version of the talk. And if your child owns a device, especially a smartphone, then that device talk about porn, cyberbullying, sexual predators, sexting, etc. has to happen when you give the kid the device. Not when you think the kid is ready for the talk or you suspect that he sprouted a couple of pubic hairs. That's too late. If you don't think it's appropriate to have a conversation with your third grader about fetish porn, and I, I agree, I don't think that should happen either. That's why the third grader cannot own a phone. Because either you give the phone and you have the conversation, or you don't have the conversation and you don't give the phone. There's no third option. What most parents don't realize is that the sooner that a child owns a device, the sooner those conversations will have to take place because the very act of giving the device speeds up the pace at which that child will have the access to sexualized content. And if you allow him or her to have social media accounts, you're also speeding up the rate and risk of that child being available both as a target for sexual predation or as a participant in sexting, porn addiction, tech addiction, and potential criminal charges. When I present to students all over the country, I give them this anonymous exit survey, and that survey reflects a few key points of data that are relevant to this issue. And by the way, the data is scarily consistent across geography and family income and types of school, public, private, etc. So here are the points that are consistent regardless of what school I go to and have been for years. The uh, porn consumption among children now begins at age 8. Porn addiction now begins at age 11. Sexting is now beginning in the 4th grade. Kids are being given smartphones at ridiculously young ages. And I'll say it another thousand times. Your child under 13 does not need a phone. In addition, children are not allowed to have any social media because of the federal COPA guidelines. COPA means the Children's Online Privacy and Protection Act. And despite that guideline, most kids start using social media well below the 13-year-old benchmark. In fact, app stores use the rating of 12 plus instead of 13, which I do not understand and we have no time to discuss right now. And I know what many of you are thinking because I've heard many of these questions and comments before in parent presentations. But I have sweet babies, Big Mama. My son would never take a picture of his junk, Big Mama. She's only 10 years old, Big Mama. Yeah, about that. The human brain is not done completely developing until you're around 25 to 27 years old. The last part of the brain to develop is the prefrontal cortex, which is located right behind your forehead. The prefrontal cortex is one of the main aspects of brain development, which separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. It allows us to engage in executive function, long-term planning, and most importantly to this topic, impulse control. Think about that. We're not in full possession of adult-level impulse control until our late 20s. Even if we presume that you do, in fact, have sweet babies and that he is, in fact, obedient and darling and kind. Here's the problem. Having a phone even after 13 provides the keys to the kingdom to every type of content for your kid to go and find. And even if you still want to believe that your child would never go and seek out sexual content, having social media at any age exposes your child to vats of sexualized content, and this is particularly true for Snapchat and TikTok. Now let's add the fact that his brain is not completely developed and won't be until he's 25. 
Kids are not shorter adults. They're taller, hairier, smellier three-year-olds. That's all this is. It's unfair of us as adults to expect children to exhibit a level of impulse control which they can't possibly produce biologically. I'm not saying that this is a pass for bad kid behavior. Your kid needs to be given standards and held to those standards and disciplined when they fall short. However, those standards need to be matched with way lower expectations. It's a matter of putting in bumpers. If you ever went bowling as a child, they probably put up the bumpers on the sides of the lane preventing the ball from falling into the gutter in order to give you a chance to learn how to bowl. I'm suggesting a digital parenting version of bumpers. Yes, my 13-year-old son, I'm giving you a phone. Here are the rules. Here are the parental control limitations. And in addition to that, because you don't have the necessary impulse control, you are not allowed to have Snapchat or TikTok bumpers. The bottom line is that I know for a fact that kids are watching copious amounts of porn because they tell me. I know that kids are sexting because they tell me. I know that some kids are addicted to porn even at shockingly young ages because they tell me. I know how many kids are using Snapchat and TikTok in elementary schools because they tell me. But let's go back to sexting. What does sexting mean anyway? Sexting just means the electronic sharing or transfer of sexual or sexualized contents, words, pictures, videos. That's it. It's electronic transfer of sexualized content. That's simple enough. And yes, it's happening everywhere. And yes, very young children are already engaging in sexting. In terms of digital risks, it seems to me we're always asking the wrong questions, even when well-intentioned. For example, I'm sometimes asked, how often are children actually sexting? By which they really mean to ask, how much sleep should I lose over this as compared to every other parenting worry that keeps me up on an average Tuesday? That's the wrong question. The correct question is, which of your child's digital behaviors are raising his or her chances of being victimized or charged with a crime? Here's a metaphor I use with my student audiences, and feel free to share this on your own with your kids. Every time a national lottery reaches a big jackpot, like $500 million or some other ungodly amount of money that no single person should have ever, There will be, like clockwork, some bubblehead on a local news program somewhere in a landlocked state like Kansas or Iowa who says something really brilliant, like you have a better chance of being bitten by a shark than winning tonight's jackpot. And honestly, I want to go through the screen and strangle these people. If you live in Kansas or Iowa or any other landlocked state without the hint of a shark nearby, you have zero chance of being bitten by a shark, and you have an infinitely better chance of winning the national jackpot. Do you you see what I'm saying? Now, let's say you decide to leave landlocked security of Iowa or Kansas and move to California. So you're closer to the sharks, but you still never go to the beach. I suppose you could accidentally somehow fall into the ocean, like you fell off a bridge, and then be bitten by a shark. I mean, it could be more possible, but it's still not likely. Now let's say you decide to take surfing lessons because you didn't uproot your life from your beautiful town in Iowa to L.A. just to count boob implants. So the moment you start those surfing lessons, your chances of being bitten by a shark rises dramatically, obviously. Now, let's say for reasons incomprehensible to logic or reason, you decide to take those surfing lessons dressed in a seal costume with a sign on your butt that says, I'm delicious. Now you have a problem. 
Again, the question is not what are the odds that I'll be bitten by a shark or victimized by a sexual predator. The question is what are you doing to raise or lower your chances of being bitten by the shark? If you have a kid who doesn't own a phone, who doesn't have social media, who spends little time in front of the screen, then your child's chances of being victimized or charged with a sexting crime are equal to the metaphorical equivalent of the shark packing his bags, flying to Iowa, and driving to your house to bite your kid. We are at the highest risk of what we repeatedly do. So parents, here are the questions to ask yourself and your child. Does your child have a smartphone? Did you give it to him under 13? Does your child have social media? Were the accounts created under 13? Does your child have Snapchat or TikTok? Have you gone through your child's list of followers? Do you personally know every one of your child's followers? If they don't, they need to go. Are all of your child's social media accounts set to private? Does your child have multiple Instagram accounts? Have you had the digital talk related to risks with your child, including sexual predation, sexting, sex trafficking, sextortion, and cyberbullying? Here's another question I get. Why is sexting such a big issue? Sexting isn't necessarily illegal when adults do it. I mean, among adults, sexting is disappointing, but not illegal. I mean, maybe it's just me, but after you've seen enough pictures of people's junk, everything starts to look like overcooked beef stroganoff, but hey, that's just me. But when it comes to sexting and children, the issue goes way beyond the visceral in-your-gut feeling when you even think about your kid taking sexualized pictures of him or herself. It goes beyond the fact that you may have tried to instill values in your children which go against taking nudes. Setting aside morality or your expectations of your child's behavior, whether you tend to be very strict or parent in a more free-range, no-rules way, regardless of that, there are inherent risks in sexting which have nothing to do with parenting style or any particular child. When children under 18 are sexting and laws vary state to state, they are committing a crime. In some states, it could be a misdemeanor. In others, it's a felony, but it's always criminal. And the sentencing for those crimes where a minor is charged can include everything from diversion programs to imprisonment to becoming a registered sex offender. And make no mistake, there are children in this country who are now registered sex offenders because they were sexting. That has happened and is happening actively. When children under 18 are sexting, they radically increase their chances of becoming the victim of sextortion. Sextortion is where a kid thinks he or she is sending pictures of himself or herself to another kid who they don't know. And it turns out not to be a kid. It turns out to be the moist guy in the basement who then comes back and says, hey, great pictures. You're going to send me 100 more a week or I'm going to tell your parents what you did. That's sextortion. Sextortion can be a stop on a train which could lead to sex trafficking, which is something we'll cover in a separate episode. When kids under 18 are sexting, they are probably consuming a significant amount of porn via peer pressure and social media. So if we take these one by one, and starting with the criminal aspect of this topic, I'd like to share an interview I did with a friend and criminal defense attorney on what to do if your child is implicated in a sexting crime and the importance of keeping your mouth shut until your attorney arrives. Well, today I'm very excited to welcome Susan Moran to the podcast. Uh, Susan has been working as a criminal defense attorney in Cleveland, Ohio since 1997. 
In 2019, she was chosen as one of only two criminal defense attorneys to review cases for possible wrongful convictions as part of the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Conviction Integrity Unit. I, when they pick only two and you're one of them, I think that's kind of badass. Since 2012, she's also worked as an adjunct professor at Case Western Reserve College of Law. Plus, she has a ton of kids and I think and a husband. Like, I don't even know how that works. Uh, Susan has always been there whenever I have a question or need some legal point, a fact clarified. And I carry her business card in my wallet just in case I personally lose it one day and road rage my car into somebody else who's texting and driving. And frankly, the fact that I have not yet needed her services is miraculous. Okay, Susan, is there anything I said in all of that that you would like to correct or add to? And welcome, by the way, I'm so glad you're here, but is there any of that you wanna fix? I'm sure you don't have a ton of kids. Um, I do, I have five kids and yes, a husband that still tolerates me. So yes, I, I speak from a, a wealth of personal experience about children. So yes. <laughs> When you see somebody else's kid messing up, you have such a good lens of boys, girls, different ages to, to view that through. I, that's, that's amazing. That's true. Um, last summer, you were kind enough to attend one of my live events because I wanted her to help me beg parents to please, 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 always, always, always bring an attorney with you when speaking to law enforcement. Even if you know your child did not do the thing, whatever the thing is, even if you were in a completely different physical location when a crime occurred and you can prove it, you've got receipts, you've got pictures in Zimbabwe. I don't care what the scenario is. Keep your mouth shut until your lawyer arrives. As a parent, you can smash their phone and ground them for life later. But while law enforcement is involved, keep your mouth shut. Oh, I'm so glad to hear you say that because you're not doing your kid a big favor by letting them talk freely. And in fact, you're doing the exact opposite. I mean, we all have uh, the constitution to protect our rights and our children's rights. And that is a right not to incriminate yourself. Mm -hmm. So that's why you stay quiet. You let your, your lawyer do the talking and you protect your kid. I want to underscore even when you know you're innocent, right? Because I, I mm -hmm. think a lot of parents would think, well, if you're innocent, just tell, you know, just tell them. And, and I think that's the part people don't realize is even when you know you're innocent, you still have to keep your mouth shut, right? I mean, am, am I right in saying that? You may think that your kid is innocent. I mean, your right. little Susie is very convincing when she's backed in a corner. Um, but the reality is Susie might be very well guilty. And once you hand over little Susie's phone right. to the officers, because you are convinced that she's not guilty, lo and behold, they find something on Susie's phone. Right. And then later, Susie's indicted. Right. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's a natural instinct to, to disclose information that you don't think is going to be hurtful. The problem is you haven't gone to law school, and you're right. not really in the best position to determine what that conduct is in terms of illegality. I do believe that 99% of law enforcement has the best interest of the truth it in, in mind, they want to get to the truth. It is also true that especially for digital stuff, a lot of local PD and a lot of law enforcement don't have the training required, right? They don't, they don't necessarily know what they're looking at. Um, and so for all of those reasons, you need a, a professional, right? Um, 
someone like Susan who's going to speak for you and speak for for your child. I'm a huge true crime fan. Um, I listen to true crime podcasts and I like I can't get enough of it. And um, I learned my lesson. And you think, well, it has to be the guy in the blue van because someone said there was a, right? And then it ends up being some other poor schlub in a blue van who happened to be driving by them. Like, like people say, well, you know, uh, coincidences don't, don't happen. No, they do. They happen all the time. Coincidences <laughs> happen all the time. People want to feel safe. So they want to catch the bad guy, right? Right, right. And so we paint a picture of who we think is the bad guy and it just makes people feel good. Mm -hmm. Say, okay, there it is. That's enough. And you know, it's not enough. And we have standards beyond a reasonable doubt. And unfortunately, it really takes great lawyering that doesn't always happen. And it takes great police work that doesn't always happen. I mean, I love our system. I think it's the best in the world, but Part of it means everyone has to do their job. Correct. And so many of the of those true crime, you know, stories, you'll see that the defense attorney didn't ask for DNA. And again, I'm screaming at the television. What are you an idiot? Or the, you know, or the or the police didn't didn't bag the fingernails. And of course, hindsight, right? And so it's easy to look back. But but still, the point is people make mistakes is the final point to all of it. And so that's why people need someone like you to speak for them who can see it dispassionately and mm -hmm. just of, of just data point after data point. Um, and so that's why I'm telling all of you who listen, whether you're an adult who gets, you know, uh, in trouble for something or you're a kid, again, you can beat them later, but for now, get the attorney and tell them to keep their mouth shut. Okay. Now, and before you leave that, I do want to add one thing, because I hear this a lot from my clients. The parents think that they're helping their child learn in the bigger picture. And they <laughs> are trying to teach them that they're, they're responsible for the consequences of their behavior. And, and I get that. I get that on a parent level. The problem is it's out of their hands. Once they've allowed their child to be a defendant and you've turned over all the evidence and everything that's incriminating, um, you're no longer in charge of that lesson. That lesson is now being taught by the state of Ohio. You may not agree with the consequences that follow. Right. And I, I think that's, that is such a good point because as parents, you do want to teach them consequences. I'm going to give you a scenario, um, which is very similar to, uh, I don't know. I've seen this literally dozens of times. Um, and you tell me what you think. Okay. So um, this is a made up scenario, although, you know, just insert names. This is happening daily. Uh, a 15 year old boy and his 15 year old girlfriend take and send nudes of themselves to each other. And let's say they each took five pictures of themselves just so that we can count. Right. So they take five pictures of themselves nude and send it to the guy sends it to the girl, girl sends it to the guy. In this case, neither one of the kids is being coerced by, you know, the moist guy in the basement. This is just them doing what they're doing, which is stupid. And we don't have time to talk about that now, but just, this is what they're doing with each other. Six months from now, they break up, right? We know where this is headed. And one of them is angry about being dumped. It doesn't matter which you pick in this scenario, whether it's the boy or the girl, it's the same ending. But let's say the boy's angry because he got dumped. And then he turns around and decides to take all the pictures the girl sent him of herself and post them on Instagram under a fake account, uh, which would technically be considered revenge porn, right? That's revenge porn. You sent me nudes. Now I'm angry. I post them to an Instagram account. Okay. 
So technically, and this is the part that I think parents don't get, is that child pornography is child pornography. And of course, it varies state to state. But child pornography is child pornography, regardless of who does it. So technically, that girl, the 15-year-old girl, could be charged with five felony counts of creation of child pornography for the picture she took of herself, 10 felony counts of possession for the five she took of herself that she has and the five that he sent of himself, and five felony counts of trafficking of child pornography for the five pictures she sent to him. Now, that's just the girl. To the guy, it's all the same stuff we just said, plus tack on an extra five of, uh, of trafficking for the five he posted onto Instagram. So, so the place where I think parents disconnect or don't aren't clear is the fact that creating child pornography sounds like something that wouldn't be related to kids. But depending on each state in the state of Ohio, as of last time I checked, it's a felony to create, possess, or traffic child pornography. So can you speak to that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And, you know, in preparation of uh, this podcast, I did reach out to a couple of my buddies, um, one who was a, a county prosecutor and another that runs the ICAC unit, so the Internet Crime Against Children unit. Those are my to- buddies. I love them. <laughs> did you tell them who did you tell them whose podcast you were going on? You know what? I wanted to keep everything on the down low, oh, okay. as I generally okay. do. <laughs> <laughs> he would have said, run, run. <laughs> I, uh, I did kind of, you know, run through some of the scenarios because I wanted to see what they're seeing. And, uh, you know, those, that scenario you presented is something that they deal with, both of them, mm-hmm. um, on a regular basis. And it's interesting, you know, in, in speaking with this particular county prosecutor, um, he said that he believes that he kind of deals with these cases on a realistic perspective. Like he mm-hmm. doesn't really want to get these kids in trouble. Right. The first thing he said to me is, thank God there were not iPhones when I was a child. Right. Amen, and, sister. Right. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, as we were conversing, the ICAC guy that I was speaking to said what they're sometimes seeing is a further component of like extortion. Right. So when the boyfriend says, Hey, I've got these pictures you better get back together with me or they're mm-hmm. going viral. I mean, that's an additional felony. And, and then they're really kind of hammering the boyfriend in that scenario. And they don't have any problem bringing a felony for that kid. And, you know, we know their frontal lobe is not developed until they're what, 23, 24? 25 so not- to 27. Oh God, see? Yeah. So they're not even thinking rationally and their their hormones are running crazy and, you know, oh, I'm about to love. The problem is when it becomes malicious intent and that's what, that's what you were talking about, right? So what, when yeah. it becomes that the, the boy put the pictures on Instagram, they're not letting that go, right? Because it, it it went from I'm just an idiot kid to you know something completely uh, separate. And the point that I want parents to hear loud and clear is that when a kid is sending sexual content of him or herself, boy or girl, doesn't matter. And and then in Cleveland, you know they do have the, uh, a task force that's that's well fun- well I say well funded. But if you ask those guys, if we doubled, tripled, quadrupled your staff, would you be would, would you catch all the bad guys? And they'd still say no. You know even even if you multiplied our staff by a factor of ten, you would still not be able to get all the bad guys, right? And, and speaking with the ICAC, it was actually this morning that I had that conversation, and he said, mm-hmm. to be honest with you, 
our workload is so large Mm -hmm. that those types of cases are almost exclusively handled by the city prosecutors. That Mm -hmm. doesn't even come across their desk. But that tells you something, right? Mm -hmm. They can't even, and, and, and just for everyone else's education, ICAC means internet crimes against children. So sexting really technically falls under ICAC. But for the volume, what you're saying is for the volume that it happens, they can't even handle it. Can you speak to the things that you've seen, the cases that you've worked on? What's the impact? Financial, they have to pay you, the you know embarrassment, all of that. Oh, yeah. I mean, just recently I had a case um, in an affluent suburb, parents, pillars of the community, um, and they were alerted that started with these girls sending uh, images of themselves and in, in and sex acts videos uh, to the boys. Um, they were doing it very willingly. The girls liked the attention. Um, then the boys were circulating all the images amongst themselves. Well, the school got word of this, and all of a sudden, they, the police are brought in. Um, <laughs> police did, made a lot of mistakes in this particular case. The, uh, the police, of course, brought the parents in with the child without an attorney. Uh And, uh, you know, the parents willingly hand over the phone to the police to look through the images. Now, this particular uh, police officer was ill-trained because Mm -hmm. um, the officer did not save the images Mm. and, in fact, told the parent to delete all the images on the phone, which is a crime, uh, tampering with evidence. So, um, so then they hired me, Oops. uh, yeah. And, uh, and then I began speaking with the, the uh, police about this matter and, uh, I revealed to them that they had sabotaged their own case by deleting these images, um, and instructing the parents to commit a crime. Um, and, uh, they subsequently, uh, you know, after much negotiation with the prosecutor, with the detective, they subsequently ended up dismissing the charges, which was huge for my client. But uh, it cost them a lot of money. Um, you know, I don't want to reveal how much I charge, but let's just say it was uncomfortable financially for them. Um, the result they were very happy with, but you know, I mean, it was embarrassing. Right. Um, you know, I had known them on a social level, and now I knew. So there is so much collateral damage. <laughs> that happens in these in these cases but um it's it's so so popular it's it's really um, troubling so here's a couple that i've seen one school hired me to come out and present to their students in the aftermath of a planned high school party where ninth grade girls were invited and expected to perform sexual acts on a group of boys who videotaped the acts and then shared the video content okay so that's that's one. Another school was dealing with a student who requested nudes from classmates. Those nudes were, were given gladly, and they were turned into an, an elaborately designed card game. I'm laughing, but it's not funny. It was sort of like Pokemon cards, but with nudes. And then this kid pre- reproduced copies of this game and sold them. Now, I know Susan's brain must be ready to explode because now that's good. Explain to, explain to everyone why you're like, why is that so much worse, Susan? Oh, oh my God. Now he's trafficking in child pornography. I mean, it's just like the, the felonies are just quadrupling. Just piling. Just piling. piling. Yeah. Piling. 
Like now he's benefiting in a financial way. Okay. Uh, you know, I was talking with the ICAC guy about a very similar scenario. He was saying that he's seeing on Instagram, girls are taking pictures of themselves. They're posting it on Instagram with their face covered and they say, DM me uh, for more photos. It's child becoming entrepreneurial as a 15 year old selling images of herself on Instagram. Well, I, I, I got to tell you, and talk about falling down the rabbit hole, Susan, you and I always end up here somehow, but I, I don't know how we do it. We're not even drinking, for God's sake. <laughs> you know, so, I do have one other scenario that I tell found me. interesting in, in this research that I was doing. So um, this particular county prosecutor was talking about how he has been seeing these young middle school kids. Uh, on their dating apps, right? Grinder, Tinder, Tinder, hot or not. Yep. Right. So these young kids have these apps on their phones and their parents aren't aware what they are. So what is happening is you have a child who knows they're gay mm -hmm. and they're too embarrassed to tell anybody. Mm -hmm. um, so they go on these gay dating sites mm -hmm. and all of a sudden they've got some 28 year old man that is willing to meet them. And this particular prosecutor said that this kid had a tent set up in his backyard. Dear God. And he was reaching out to these men and having sex with them in his tent in the backyard. These kids are so embarrassed to say, hey, I'm gay. I'm gonna go online. I'm gonna meet somebody else that's gay. And then all of a sudden they're in this scenario they never foresaw. You, know, you can see where this could go. Like, you better keep doing this or I'm telling your parents and, and that whole rabbit hole that, that occurs in that scenario. Well, and, and, and you have to wonder about what kind of 28 year old man climbs into a tent and thinks that that's okay. But, and, and I also want to make the, the distinction for parents out there who don't know a lot about the LGBT community, and not that I'm some authority, but I do have close relatives that are LGBT. And so I just want to make it clear, the fact that you're gay doesn't make you a child molester. That 28-year-old guy is a child molester. The average LGBT person wants to be in a relationship with an adult. Like that's not, those two are not synonymous. The fact that because you're gay, you're a child rapist. Absolutely. And my, my point is, I would love to see more support from that community for the children. A hundred percent. So is there anything else that you feel we should be including in here? Or, or how about if the police show up at your house, what's the first thing you do? Yeah, right. So absolutely. If you get a call that from the police that it's suspected that your child is involved with sexting, possession, and we'd like to just sit down and have a discussion with them. You know, not, you know, and they, they are so good when they come to your house and they make it seem like, you know what, I'm going to bring the apple pie, we're going to eat the pie, and we're going to talk about this, and you know, everything's going to be fine. It's not going to be fine, okay? And something I tell all of my criminal defense clients is just be polite and say, thank you very much. Obviously, I need to have my lawyer here just to make sure all the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed. I'm happy to make an appointment with you. Let me get back with you after I talk with my lawyer. And they're going to say, oh, no, 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 no. You don't need a lawyer about this. Just, just, you know, we just want to sit Susie down and, you know, she's not the target of this. Susie's not the target. We just want to know what she knows. 
-hmm. That's not the case. And even if it is the case, in 30 seconds, Susie is going to be the target because Susie knows something and Susie's done something and you don't know what Susie's done. So don't be fooled into thinking, hey, this is copacetics. Susie's good. She's an A student. She would never take nude videos of herself. This is preposterous. Susie did, probably. Okay. <laughs> Poor Susie. Poor Susie. And you say I'm using my own name here. You're Susie. You're <laughs> Susie. Susie. You're going to want to think that it's fine because that's naturally how you want to think that everything's going to be fine. Um, you're not doing your kid any favor. Press that pause button. Let me just make a phone call to my lawyer. That lawyer is going to say, do not make any statements. Do not let Susie talk to the cops. Do not let Susie hand her phone over to the police without a warrant. This is what we're here for. You know, this is what we do. This is our job. Let us let everyone else do their job. This system works as long as everyone does their job. Right. Let us protect your kid. You'll have plenty of an opportunity to teach your kid a lesson. Right. Don't later. let the prosecutors teach them the lesson. You know. And I, I need to defend my my law enforcement friend with the pie. When he when he gets there, he may really not think Susie did anything wrong. Like he may legit think Susie's cool. Right. But if he gets the phone and sees pictures of Susie's bits flapping in the breezes, Susie is hosed. Yes. That's <laughs> the point. Because you point. know that Susie. You, we all know about Susie. Right. I mean, they're <laughs> investigators. That's what their job is. Okay. So explain to me, because it has never occurred to me till this very second. Explain to me what happens when a family cannot afford mm -hmm. their own defense attorney. And I get the call from the police. Do I just, if I can't afford an attorney, can I request a pro bono attorney just for the meeting? I can't, right? You cannot really. I mean, I can, I can only speak from my personal experience in um, Cuyahoga County and the surrounding counties of Northeastern Ohio. You don't get an attorney until arraignment. You're an charged. Arraignment yeah. into, yes. So that is way further down the line. You don't have the right to a free lawyer. At this so what does a parent do? Say, I'm not talking to you. If you yeah. have to charge them, charge them. I'm not talking yes, to you. Exactly. Okay. Less so, information, the better. So if you are a family that cannot afford your own uh, private defense attorney, the police have called, there's a problem. They want you to come down and speak to them. If you cannot afford your own defense attorney, what Susan Moran is saying and what I would agree with is that you say no and if they have to charge your child, then let them charge them. And then you will be given the opportunity of a, an attorney you do not have to pay for. That's correct. The less information that's given over accidentally on purpose and you know unwittingly about your child, the better off everybody's going to be, right? Let's, let's make the takeaway that um, you, know, you, should, you should be checking your kid's phone. If you see child pornography on your kid's phone, delete it. Yeah. And P.S., there are certain apps that are just conducive, right? So TikTok, Snapchat, and, there, and there's a couple others which will be addressed in other episodes. But it's an issue of uh, unfettered access and unsupervised time. When you put those two things together, you have a problem. 
Um, all right, my dear. Well, I so appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, the good thing is I'm doing it in my pajamas. So, hey. you know, that's not so bad. Excellente. <laughs> I would have liked to have seen your jammies. <laughs> They're Wonder Woman pajamas, just FYI. Of course they are. Because <laughs> you're Wonder Woman. Miss Susan, I can't thank you enough. Uh, this has been great because sometimes I, I say all these things to parents and I know that at least a few of them are going, she is out of her mind. So that's why it's nice to have someone like you going, no, actually she's only a little out of her mind. Oh, my pleasure, my pleasure. I'd like to add a PS to that interview with Susan. The same day that we recorded that piece, I reached out to a police officer friend of mine and I told him about the interview and wanted to know how he felt about the keep your mouth shut rule. And he said something really interesting to me and I want to share it with you. He said, yes, we all want and should want our children to tell the truth and to cooperate with law enforcement. Yes, the job of law enforcement is to solve a case and their idea of a great day is not arresting kids for sending news. And even when your child is not originally the target of an investigation, that child should conceivably or could conceivably incriminate him or herself via the process of cooperating. Whenever I'm asked, do I need an attorney? I answer, if you're asking the question, it means you have questions and you probably should get an attorney. And I would not hesitate to get an attorney for my own child the second I thought it was necessary, even if I thought she were innocent. I think that quote from a police officer is amazing. And based on that, I called another police officer friend of mine and asked him the same question. He said, quote, it's 100% a good idea to wait until your attorney is present, especially in juvenile cases where the stakes are so high. Honestly, our job is made way easier when people stupidly incriminate themselves. Some police officers might be bothered or offended when someone refuses to talk until his attorney is present, but I welcome it. We're all competitive by nature, and I want to close a case that was well fought on both sides. In a recent case where the juvenile had only just turned 18 years old, before questioning him, we actually told him it would be a good idea to call an attorney. And at that point, we still thought he might be guilty. He was facing multiple felonies and ended up being completely innocent in the end. If one of my own children were in a similar situation, I would absolutely wait for an attorney before talking to police. So there's input on two police officers who are agreeing with the keep your mouth shut rule. So that covers a bit of the criminality aspect of sexting, where your child may be the unintentional perpetrator of a crime. But how about the flip side? When your child is victimized because of sexting by sexual predator, sextortion, revenge porn, or sex trafficking. So here are a few other uh, recent criminal cases. And as usual, I'm not going to use their names, um, but I am going to put the links to all the real stories in the liner notes. So if you would like to look them up, you're welcome to do that. Uh, in November 2019, a 35-year-old North Dakota man was sentenced to 60 years in prison. Between May 2015 and May 2017, he solicited and coerced hundreds of children from across the U.S. The US and internationally into producing thousands of self-produced pieces of child pornography, both photos and videos. He used Skype kick snapchat and musically and ps musically was an app that was purchased by the tiktok company and is now called tiktok investigators found that hundreds of times he had directed children to engage in very specific sexual acts which then he recorded in live presentations 
the North Dakota Bureau of Criminal Investigations has identified 90 children from three different countries who he has victimized. And I just want to read you this quote from one of the law enforcement folks. It says, quote, this defendant used social media and preyed on young girls whom he enticed into self-producing explicit photos and videos. These young girls were essentially coerced into online sexual servitude through manipulation and intimidation. The details of his heinous crimes send a somber warning about the very real and present dangers that lurk just a keystroke away on so many social media platforms, end quote. In another case, this is from uh, March 2nd of this year, 2020, just a few weeks ago, uh, a 30-year-old New Jersey high school teacher's aide and coach pled guilty to trafficking and possession of child pornography, and he admitted to using his cell phone and Snapchat uh, for pornography possession and coercion of victims. In July 2019, a 33-year-old man in Pennsylvania swapped sexually explicit photos with an 11-year-old girl on Facebook. And you know what I'm going to say, why is 11-year-old on Facebook? <sighs> he was caught after the girl's parents discovered their text exchanges on Facebook Messenger and good for them. He the parents are the ones who caught it happening. By the way, he had asked the 11-year-old girl to take photos of her genitals and send them to him, and she did, and in return, he sent her nudes of himself. Another case, January 2020, uh, an ex-teacher, 31-year-old man from Nebraska, high school teacher, coach, charged with child enticement, possession of child porn, and other charges after using Snapchat to reach out to students saying he wanted to have a sexting relationship. February 15th, 2020. Fortnite predator, 20-year-old man from Missouri, indicted for production of child pornography after the mother of, of an 11-year-old boy saw missed calls on the child's phone from a name she didn't recognize. Later, she answered a call from that name from the unknown number and heard an adult's voice, which the child said sounded like the voice of one of his, quote, gaming friends. Investigators discovered that the man had met up in real life with at least four young boys that he had met on Xbox while playing Fortnite and then persuaded them to send naked pictures and videos. May 1st, 2019, 32-year-old California man attempted sexual contact with a 10-year-old girl using Snapchat. Despite knowing that the girl was only 10, he attempted to pick her up from school to engage in multiple sexual activities. The suspect used Snapchat to send the victim videos of himself performing sexual acts and solicited her to send him videos. November 2019, 35-year-old man from Utah arrested for sexually exploiting a minor and possession of child pornography with victims as young as four years old. He admitted to law enforcement that he had taken voyeuristic photos of a 15-year-old girl while she was sleeping and other photos of more teenage girls without their knowledge. So let's pause there for a minute. So this guy, this man, this 35-year-old man, is taking voyeuristic photos of young girls while they're sleeping, which means he must be physically near them or knows them or has physical access to them if he's taking pictures of them while they're sleeping. Members of the investigative task force found the comforter in one of those photos and with a forensic search of his cell phone found thousands of pictures of videos that included a naked eight-year-old girl who was being sexually assaulted, naked four-year-old girl, 
being sexually assaulted and naked five-year-old girl being sexually assaulted. So I, 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 haven't, I haven't said all of this to you just to give you nightmares or to bring you inside of my head, which is filled with goblins and all of this trash, which it kind of is, and welcome to the inside of my head. I'm telling you this because we need to understand that this happens more than we think it does. We need to understand that just because the person is a coach, teacher, pastor, minister, uh, baker, maker, cancer, I don't care who the person is. If we don't know them or we do know them, we have to be very careful who we allow to have access to our children. So... Remember, when kids are using and overusing social media, particularly Snapchat and TikTok, it means that they're multiplying their consumption of porn and experiencing the peer pressure aspect of sexting. So this next part here is the reason that my head broke and I decided to bring you this topic an entire week ahead of time. While I was gathering my sources for this episode, I came across an article on a website, which I wasn't familiar with the website, and frankly, it seemed a little hinky, and you should always question your sources. The title of the article, honestly, seems so outrageous that I thought I was going to find it debunked on Snopes, and that title article was, quote, Snapchat and Teen Vogue Encouraging Teens to Create Child Pornography During Quarantine, National Center uh, for Sexual Exploitation Says. So I check it out. It was not debunked on Snopes, but the article mentioned the National Center on Sexual Exploitation, so I decided to go to NCOSE's website to find out what they had to say. And I wanted to know what they had to say in their own words and not filtered through a third-party site I know little to nothing about. So on NCOSE's website, I find a March 25, 2020 article titled, similarly, quote, Teen Vogue Encouraging Minors to Sexually Exploit Themselves on Snapchat. So the article by NCOSE says, quote, in mid-March 2020, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, Teen Vogue, which has a troubling history with teenagers and sexual exploitation, posted a Snapchat discover story about sexting under the guise of helping teenagers sustain their relationships from a distance. Now, thing one, Teen Vogue does 100% have a troubling history, I think that's putting it mildly, with teenagers and sexual exploitation. But the second part of the sentence from the NCOSE article bothered my sense of fairness a little bit. The part about the fact that Teen Vogue posted the story, quote, under the guise of helping teenagers. It sounds a little too conspiracy theory for my taste. And to my ear, it's meant to make Teen Vogue sound like it's led by some Machiavellian sex-crazed cult leader who strokes a hairless cat all day and obsesses on how to make sure every kid ends up naked and with herpes. I don't believe that much in conspiracy theories, mostly because I don't believe people are that organized. I think you have to lower your expectations on the reality of people if you're going to be that conspiracy theorist. But the second part is that the reality is that Teen Vogue, and I'm not defending them, it's just the truth, had to move from print to online because print is sadly going the way of the dodo bird. So Teen Vogue's supposed evil hornification machinations are really more, how do we keep this magazine alive? And I'm not in any way excusing the content of the articles. It's disgusting. That comes next. 
The fact of the matter is that the magazine's young readers may very well all end up naked and with herpes, but it'll be a result of Teen Vogue's rank stupidity and cataclysmic negligence, which, by the way, I respect way less than evil intentionality. I went on Teen Vogue's website and I searched for the term sexting. This is a be careful what you wish for, right? In order to decide for myself. And here's what I found. Teen Vogue's content on sexting has changed dramatically from 2011 until now. Now, notice the timing and the subsequent shift because the shift in their attitude towards sexting, and it could also be, you know, in a way generational because it's now nine years from 2011, but it's also a shift and follows the shift from print to screen, right? On the screen, all that matters is the click. So let's go through these articles really quickly. In May 2011, Teen Vogue had an article called, Can Sexting Get You Arrested? And that article went into specific details about criminality, and the bottom line of that article from May 2011 was, kids don't do it. Okay, now move on to 2014. Another article by the same author, by the way, uh, called, Yet Another Reason to Think Before You Sext. And in that one, it talks about pedophiles who steal photos. It gives an actual case about a 14-year-old girl who was victimized. The bottom line of that article tells kids, don't do it. Okay, now we're at 2017, April 2017. Article by a different author, and that article is called How to Sext the Best Tips and Tricks. By the way, great advice for adults. It should be consensual. Don't share images with others. It should have said don't make pictures that look like beef stroganoff, but whatever, that's just that that's my editorial. However, this statement, which you would expect to appear in that article, which by the way, shouldn't appear at all in a magazine called Teen Vogue, but but even 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 leaving that aside for a moment, the statement of if you're under 18. It's a crime, which you would think would be the first thing at the top of the article, was buried halfway down the article as a subtopic. And I'm sure it wasn't intentional. I mean, it's not, again, I don't know that it was intentional to bury that. The fact that the article was there in the first place was stupid. Now we come to May 2019. Uh, Article called, When Is It Safe to Send a Partner Nude Photos? Okay, so that one... (laughs) And I I want to read you the quote because this this to me is the worst of all of them. Forget about the one that just came out in March. The May 19th article called When Is It Safe to Send a Partner a Nude Photo says, quote, If you're under a certain age, sending sexy selfies can count as distributing child pornography and can even be considered a felony in some states. So why am I not taking a hard line and insisting you never send nudes? Because there's something supremely messed up about a naked pic having the potential to shame, humiliate, and destroy someone's life, especially because nearly everyone does it. End quote. The bottom line to this particular article was the law shouldn't apply because everybody does it. I I, I have no words for that kind of ridiculous logic, particularly in a magazine called Teen Vogue. But now let's get to the March 2020 article, which is what started this whole my head broke thing and the post from the National Center on Sexual Exploitation. That one was called 
dating and coronavirus. Can you still kiss, have sex, and go on dates during social distancing? Okay, and by the way, the subtitle said, sorry to tell you, the answer is you shouldn't with few exceptions. Okay, this March 2020 article is way more tame than the one from 2019. And the quote that that sent NCOSC over the edge, which I get, by the way, says, if you're in the early stages of your romance, you can still forge an emotional bond with your new boo by texting and FaceTime. There are all kinds of creative, fun ways to sext if you're at that level. And P.S., the the March 2020 article never mentions that it's illegal. Okay, now there's one article to go. After NCOSC had posted that, uh, the, the thing about the, being upset about the article. This one's called Everybody's Horny and Thirst Trapping Like There's No Tomorrow Because of the Coronavirus Pandemic. Subtitle, it's a weird nudes roulette every time I pick up my phone. I'm sorry, I can't laugh. I can't say that title without laughing. So that article says... Quote, you should only be sharing or posting nudes on your own terms. Furthermore, if you're under a certain age, it could be counted as child pornography, blah, blah, blah. So that article from just April 3rd, 2020 does say, you know, it's a felony, whatever. And then three paragraphs later, it says, if you're posting that photo, it better stand out though, right? And proceeds to give tips on lighting, photo composition, clothing, non-clothing, etc., Again, remember, all of these articles are in teen vogue, presumably 13 to 19. But to me, the worst of them, again, is not the one that they originally called out from March 18th, 2020, or the article, yeah, the March 18th, 2020 about the coronavirus. Uh, That's not the worst. The worst is the 2019 one, where she says, yeah, it's illegal and you totally shouldn't do it, but hey, do it anyway, because what? Is that some legal defense written by middle schoolers? It's not fair. Wah, wah, it's not fair. You want to be a grown-up and send a picture of your junk all over the place? Then take your legal lumps like a grown-up. You can't choose that moment to suck your thumb and say it's not fair. And by the way, the fairness of the law doesn't render it not a law. NCOSC, for their part, does great work in trying to curb the overwhelming onslaught of sex trafficking, sextortion, sexual predation, revenge porn, etc. that's happening everywhere. They do some really great stuff, really. In fact, right under the article, they have an opportunity often for individuals to engage in a little bit of social activism where you can uh, let these companies know how you feel about whatever it is that they've done. So in this case, individuals can send a message to Snapchat because what happened was that Teen Vogue promoted this article on Snapchat, right? So NCOSC is saying we should tell Snapchat that they need to take it down. And so you have the opportunity on the NCOSC website to do that very thing. However, that uh, social activism email tells Snapchat. Snapchat. I almost can't say it without laughing. The language that NCOSC is using, well-intentioned, by the way. I'm not making fun of them at all. I think what they're trying to do is the right thing. But the language that they're using for Snapchat, to me, the irony is hilarious. And the language in that email that we're meant to send to them to appeal to their better nature or something is, quote, by teaching and encouraging teens to sex. This is, we're telling Snapchat this about Teen Vogue. Okay, by teaching and encouraging teens to sex, you are telling them that it's okay to create child pornography and you are facilitating and reinforcing behavior that leaves children at increased risk of sexual grooming, coercion, abuse, and trafficking, etc. 
telling Snapchat essentially to do the right thing and remove an advertiser's content because it encouraging sexting among minors is hilarious. Sexting is what Snapchat was built on. It's what it thrives on. Sexting's in the drywall at Snapchat headquarters. It's in the wallpaper. It runs through the pipes. It heats the offices. Sexting makes up the fiber of the toilet paper and the... Okay, well, that fits. But I'm pretty sure if you take a jackhammer and dig up the like cruelty-free juice bar in the Snapchat lobby... You'll just find layer upon layer of dick pics and booty shots and moist bits just flip-flapping all over the place. Snapchat equals sexting. So back to that email appeal to Snapchat's better nature. Are we trying to appeal to Snapchat's moral high ground, their ingrained sense of child protection? Seriously? We're asking Snapchat to be the guiding moral compass to Teen Vogue? That's not even the pot calling the kettle black. That's like watching the pot intentionally set hundreds of forest fires and then appointing the pot fire marshal in order to discipline the kettle who just had fired all the sewers. And make no mistake, Teen Vogue is the kettle, but they weren't always. The content has become increasingly more outrageous and sexually provocative as the publication has moved from only print to print and web to only web. It's far less about the content and all about the clickbait. And look, I have a message for Teen Vogue. If you're going to have teen in your brand name, maybe don't act like the creepy uncle douchebag who can only manage to write sexual clickbait for who? 13 to 19 year olds? How are you not embarrassed? I mean, clearly there's no sense of shame, but does no one on your staff have teenage children? Why don't you just write a series on how to drink under 21? Because I mean, it's like against the law, but like everybody does it. And that's not fair. What is the matter with you people? And forget about the ethical side. It's just not a good look. And if your real editorial intention is just to create sexual clickbait with better fashion sense, that's cool. Then remove the teen from your name. You're clearly having an identity crisis and you might want to get that looked at because it's starting to fester. Now, as far as parents are concerned, parents, you need to listen loud and clear. Teen Vogue does not care about your children. They're not an advocacy group. They're not meant to care. They're meant to make money. They don't care if they're reckless. They don't care if they accidentally encourage or in my opinion, are in fact aiding and abetting your children into committing felonies. They're only there to make money. That's it. So if you really want to make a difference, delete Snapchat in your entire house, which really should have happened anyhow, besides this case, and ban Teen Vogue and its entire parent company, Condé Nast, from your home. Since all they care about is money, that's the only language they're going to understand. And look, here's how I see this. And I may be more angry than the average bear because I have met these children. I have looked them in the eyes when they tell me, sometimes before they've told anyone else about how they're getting nudes from some freak online or how they're being coerced into sending nudes and think they have to comply or someone's going to come to their house and murder their entire family. I've had those actual conversations with different kids multiple times, multiple of multiple times. And I want you to know too. So just for this episode which is why it's late, I grabbed the student survey data, which I personally and in real life collected from students at 10 schools where I presented over this past school year, well, before the world cracked in half, but they're not even the 10 most recent, just 10 that I randomly grabbed. 
And I did a few quick calculations to share with you. So here's what we've got, people. You might want to sit down or get off the treadmill to listen to this next bit. And by the way, all this data will be included in the liner notes for the show. And for those of you who are new to podcasts, the liner notes are the basically the description of the episode. And you can also find them on my website at www.overnightgeekuniversity.com. Okay, here goes. This entire data, what I pulled, includes 10 schools, six public, three religious, and one private across four different states. And they run the entire socioeconomic and geographic spectrum from extremely poor communities to extremely wealthy, from very rural to very urban and everything in between. The complete bank of data for just these 10 schools includes data from 11,625 students and covers third graders to 12th graders across those schools. Throughout each of my student presentations, and as a result of the anonymous exit survey they fill out for me at the end, I'm able to gather super specific data on device ownership, device usage, tech addiction, which issues at their school students feel are the biggest issue, which apps they use, which games they play, and very often they will, in the comments, offer up anonymous confessions of misbehavior, of stuff like, I'm going to stop doing this or that thing. But for today, we're only going to zero in on two aspects of this data set. So I polled just the students who are under 13 years old. So I estimated that as third to sixth grade. And I only polled data related to device ownership and sexual content, porn uh, and sexting and Snapchat and TikTok. So when we use those parameters, we're left with 2,826 students covering third, fourth, fifth, and sixth, or the students we can comfortably assume are under 13 years old. Why 13? Because again, COPA says no social media under 13, and my own recommendation is no phones under 13. Therefore, we should expect that these children should have way less to no experience with sexualized content and risk. Okay, first data point. Out of those 2,826 students, they have a combined total of 5,882 social media accounts or 2.08 social media accounts per student. That's an average. Doesn't mean every child has two social media accounts, but rather than one child may have zero and another may have four. And just in case you think that the sixth grade numbers are unnecessarily weighing down the average, let me just give you two quick examples. The third graders in that pot uh, represent 253 students that have 425 accounts. Those kids are eight years old. Let me say that again. 253 third graders, they're eight years old, had 425 social media accounts. That's an average of 1.68 per child. Among the fourth graders, that was 341 students. They had 508 accounts combined. That's an average of 1.49 per child. So if you're keeping track of that in your head, you just heard correctly that the third graders on average had more social media than the fourth graders. And this phenomenon of younger children outpacing older children is pretty consistent at most schools that I go to. Not on every data point, but when I see it, it doesn't surprise me anymore. All right, second, second data point. Let's look at smartphone ownership. Remember, these children are all under 13 years old. Okay, third grade, which is around eight years old, to sixth grade, which is about 11, 12 years old. The overall average for all of these kids is 69% phone ownership. So let's break it down. The third graders in the group, 48% of them own a smartphone. 48% of eight-year-olds own a smartphone. 
Fourth graders with 60%, fifth graders 61%, uh, sixth graders 79%. Third data point. Now, social media, specifically Snapchat and TikTok. Okay, the greatest of all the living, teeming, boiling, moist cesspools. Overall average usage of Snapchat across third to sixth, 40.3%, 40.3. So out of 2,826 students, 1,140 have a Snapchat account. Okay, so let's look at third grade, 25% of the third graders have a Snapchat account. They're eight years old. Among fourth graders, it was 28%. So the only separation between the eight-year-olds and the nine-year-olds in Snapchat is three percentage points. You don't have to be a genius to figure out that by the time those third graders or fourth graders, that behavior and that risk is gonna be way higher. Overall average use of TikTok across third to sixth graders, almost identical, 40.4 almost exactly the same as Snapchat, which by the way is pretty typical. If kids have Snapchat, they usually have TikTok. If they have TikTok, they have Snapchat. Third graders, here the proportions are different though. They're way more even. Among third graders using TikTok, 33%. Fourth graders, 37%. Fifth graders, 38%. Sixth graders, 44%. Fourth data point. Let's talk about what these kids said about their own misbehavior. And just to be clear, I never bring up porn to a bunch of little kids, ever. There are times they brought it up to me. And when they do, I explain how watching anything that you know your parents wouldn't want you to watch or listen to literally changes the makeup of your brain. And I explain neuroplasticity and addictive brain behaviors, whatever. The point is I don't bring it up to them. There's a question on the survey that says, now that you've heard this presentation, what are you going to change about your behavior? And they can write whatever they want. They often promise to stop this or cut that or whatever. So one of the things they offer to stop doing is watching porn or sexting. So overall average of how many kids promise to stop or cut down on sexting from third to sixth grade is 4.6%. So out of 2,826 students, 131 of them are promising to stop sexting. That means that 131 of them are sexting. Obviously, that doesn't mean that only 131 of them are sexting. That just means that those are the ones that are promising to stop. And by the way, the percentage is super close. Third grade, 3%. Fourth grade, 5%. Fifth grade, 4%. Sixth grade, 5%. Pretty close among those kids. Next, overall average of kids promising to stop or cut down on watching porn. From third to sixth grade, 8.8%. So out of those 2,826 students, 249 of them are promising to either stop or what makes me laugh is when they say they're going to they're gonna cut, like a porn diet, they're going to cut down, they're going to cut back on watching so much porn. And P.S., the most often specifically mentioned apps connected to porn consumption are usually Pornhub, Snapchat, and YouTube. So third grade. 12%, fourth grade, 11%, fifth grade, 8%, sixth grade, 8%. Now, that doesn't mean that more third graders are consuming porn than sixth graders. It could be that the third graders have a higher desire to change that behavior, and the sixth graders are totally okay with how much porn they're consuming. Thank you very much, Big Mama. Okay, fifth and last data point. The survey asked the students to choose from a list which they think is the biggest issue at school. One of the options is none. It's a multiple choice. So here is the 
total average of third to sixth graders who chose sexting or inappropriate content being shared among classmates as the biggest issue at school. Okay, 20%. So out of those 2,826 students from third grade to sixth grade, 560 of them believe that the biggest problem among their friends is sexting. And they did not choose cyberbullying, device addiction, increased drama in the school day because of social media, or none. They chose sexting. In third grade, 36%, fourth grade, 22%, fifth grade, 17%, sixth grade, 18%. And no matter how you slice this data, 12% of a group of third graders who unprompted offer to stop watching so much porn is a huge problem. The fact that 22% of a group of fourth graders feel that sexting is the biggest issue among their friends is a huge problem. It's a problem that's on fire. And what are we collectively doing to fight that fire? Argue about which color fire extinguisher to use. So look, we'll end this show where we began. Kids are misbehaving on devices. As parents, we know this. The schools have to deal with it on a daily basis. Law enforcement has had to concoct and build special task forces just to deal with the volume of the crime. Kids are suffering. Whether the child has been a perpetrator or a victim or both, kids are suffering. Beside the obvious impact on the child, embarrassment, mental health, depression, isolation, the impact on the school day, how much learning is going on in a building where a story about sexting is circulating, zero. There's the impact on the family of both the victims and the family of the perpetrator. Everything else in your life stops, the the financial potential cost of having to hire an attorney. If you want to prevent this from happening in your home, there's no guarantee, but these few tips I hope will help you. Again, no phones under 13. No social media under 13. If you are going to allow them to have social media at 13 or over, you have to have this conversation. Get a list of all of your child's social media logins and passwords. You should be able to log in at any moment of your choosing. If your child changes the password without telling you, they lose the phone. Have the talk, the digital version. Well, you should definitely have the regular version too, but this one especially. With your child about sexting, sexual predation, etc. And when you're done, have the conversation again. And when you're done, have it again. Wash, rinse, repeat. They do listen. They do hear you. We just have to keep saying it. Well, that's our show. Check out the liner notes for all of the references and data used in the episode. If you're already a member of the fan club, check out the channel for a fan-only download for this episode, which includes a checklist of reminders, minute-by-minute breakdown, and extended sources and links. I'd like to thank my guest, Susan Moran, criminal defense attorney in the Cleveland area. Thank you uh, to Jake from the National Center on Sexual Exploitation who answered a bunch of my questions. And of course, thank you to my anonymous police officer friends. They know who they are. Uh, Thanks for always taking my calls immediately and answering my unending stream of what-if questions. And thanks to all of you for listening. I sincerely hope that you've all learned something useful, and I hope that we can continue to work together to keep your children safer. Remember... Parenting is hard. Be kind to yourself. See you next time. 
This has been a Big Mama's House production, hosted by Jesse Weinberger. The outro music was written and mastered by Caleb Weinberger.